Well, happy Mother's Day to the mums and grandmums. Um, I wonder what are the best kinds of marriage advice that you've ever heard. So maybe uh, you were given some marriage advice because you're married, or maybe you, you're not married yet, but you've been in the privileged position of being a best man or having to give a speech at someone's wedding and you gave some marriage advice. Well, I, I went and Googled some marriage advice and these are some of the, um, the, the best ones I could find. So have a look at the first one. How about this? 90% of being married is just shouting, what? From other rooms. Correct, isn't it? Yeah. How about this one? Hold your wife's hand in the shopping mall because if you let go, she'll start shopping. It looks romantic, but it's actually economical. Very good, very good. How about this one? Marriage tip. Your wife is less likely to argue with you if you're cleaning. You can have that one for free, husbands. And this really captures marriage, this next one. Marriage is an endless sleepover with your favorite weirdo. Karen, you're my favorite weirdo. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous chapter of the Bible we just read, is often seen like that, like good marriage advice. It, I've, I've heard it read out at weddings. It's one of people's favorite wedding passages. I've preached on it a number of times at weddings. It's even the kind of thing you could get written in beautiful calligraphy and give it to a married couple so they can hang on their wall, isn't it? But is that what it is in context? Well, I think you know the answer to that because we're actually going through 1 Corinthians. We picked up last week from chapter 12. We're going to keep going chapter 14. And if you remember from last week, 1 Corinthians 12 was on the issue of spiritual gifts. Right? Spiritual gifts within the church that God gives to his people. But particularly in the, the, the church of Corinth, in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, which was a messy church, a church that was divided because of the gifts, because some people felt like they were on the inside because they had certain spectacular gifts. Other people felt like they were on the outside. There were the haves and the have-nots. And this messy church had started abusing and hurting each other because of gifts. That was chapter 12. Now, next week, when we come to chapter 14, well, he's going to come back to the topic of spiritual gifts, especially focusing on two gifts that the Corinthians likely um, talked a lot about, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. We'll come back to that next week. Now, what have you got there? 12, 14 on gifts and then sandwich right in the middle. And if you've been with me for a long time, you know I love looking for sandwiches in the Bible, partly because I love sandwiches and hamburgers. So I like the idea of a sandwich, right, where, where, where you've got two bits and then the middle Right, is something that, that holds everything together. And that's what we've got here. 12 is on gifts, 14 is on gifts, and sandwich in the middle is 1 Corinthians 13. So actually the context means that this chapter and everything that Paul says here, like the meat in the sandwich, is supposed to be the most important thing that he wants to say on the topic of spiritual gifts. And you see that actually, if you've got your Bibles open, I recommend that you have it open for today, whether on your apps or paper Bibles. Um, let's read straight through from the end of chapter 12 all the way to the first bit of chapter 13. You'll see how it flows naturally because those verse numbers and chapter numbers, they weren't there when the Apostle Paul wrote it. They were put in later. So look at 29, verse 29. This is at the end of last week's passage. Paul says, are all apostles, he's talking about gifts now, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. 
All right, here are the gifts, desire greater ones. We'll talk about that next week. But I want to tell you something even more excellent. And what is he going to talk about? Chapter 13, love. So as you get into chapter 13, I want you to see that this is less like the beautiful love poem your dad presents you on your wedding day and more like your mum telling you off. And that actually makes it more relevant to us. And so we're going to pray and we're going to get into it. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this Wonderful chapter that has done uh, so much to shape our view of love. But even as we look at it today in the context of how you wanted to communicate to that ancient church of Corinth, but also how you want to communicate to us 21st century in Bankstown, that you might teach us to love, teach us to love each other like Christ loved us. Amen. So I've got three points. Why is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Sorry. Can't help it, can you? Uh, why is love? What is love? And who is love? Okay, follow with me on your outlines. Firstly, why? Now, I said 12, 13, 14 of 1 Corinthians is a sandwich. But chapter 13 itself, this passage is itself got a sandwich. See, I'm going sandwich crazy. I'm getting hungry. How about you? Okay, so if you look at chapter 13, the first three verses are about gifts. Then verses 8 to 13, how it ends, is again about spiritual gifts. So you've got two pieces of bread, and at the middle, once again, the most important part, verses 4 to 7, describes what love is. That that's the center. So we've got even in chapter 13 a sandwich structure. And so what I want to do in this first point is tackle the bookends first. Tackle the bread, and then we'll come in point 2 to the center. Right, remember chapter 12, verse 31, he ends chapter 12 with, I will show you the most excellent way. So we want to ask ourselves the question, why is love the most excellent way? Why is it more excellent than gifts? Gifts are wonderful. It builds the body of Christ. Some of them are downright spectacular. But he says, no, love is the most excellent way. Why is that? Number one, a person with gifts but no love is nothing. And that's the first piece of bread, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it again. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now you see what he's doing there. He firstly, Paul, the writer, he takes some of the most extraordinary examples of supernatural gifts. Tongues, prophecy, faith. And then he puts them on steroids. All right? So you've got that one. First one, tongues. The ability to speak in unknown languages. And he says, even if you can speak of unknown languages, not just of people, human languages, but of angelic languages, right? On steroids. What about prophecy? Even if you have such an amazing gift of prophecy, and I call it the Doctor Strange level of prophecy. If you know Avengers, Doctor Strange saw how many futures? 14,605 futures. If you don't know what I'm talking about, sorry. And go and see Avengers. If you have Dr. Strange level of prophecy or faith, look at this one, supernatural faith, faith that can move mountains. I've got a friend who's working as a civil engineer on the M5 project. He wishes he had faith like that because it'd be so much easier. Right? Even if you have gifts of that level. And then verse 3, he goes on to not just gifts, but Christian commitment, sacrifice. And he puts them on steroids. So you've got generosity at 
Mother Teresa level. If you give your body to hardship, literally it's give over your body. I think he means here martyrdom. He means death. Older translations, your body is burnt in the flames. You completely give it all. All of these, individually, all put together, without love, what's it like? Well, that super duper, supercharged gift of tongues. Being able to speak in human or even angelic tongues. Without love, this is what it sounds like, Paul says. I could go on, but I don't want to wreck it. What about prophecy and faith? Dr. Strange level of prophecy. Every civil engineer's dream level of faith. Moving mountains faith. He says, well, notice what he says. He, He doesn't say, if you don't have love, these gifts are nothing. It's much stronger than that, isn't it? He says, if you don't have love, you are nothing. Or literally, you are a nothing. You're a nobody without love. What about total generosity and sacrifice? Well, he says nothing is gained without love. This is an investment. You've just given your body. You've given everything. Well, that's an investment that leaves you bankrupt without love. Do you see how important love is? I want you for a moment to ask yourself these two questions. How would you answer the question of who are you and what do you do? Who are you? What do you do? And particularly for a moment, for those who are Followers of Jesus, especially if you're part of this church, I want you to start with answering those questions from the perspective of, of this church. When it comes to SWEC, who are you? For some, naturally, you'll say, and you'll know, you, you, you're a leader in some sort of sense. you CG leader, a music leader. You might even be an elder. There are elders among us. You might be a pastor. There are three pastors here today. You might be a mentor, an older brother or sister, an uncle and auntie to someone younger. You might be someone who's very respected. You might be someone who's very loved and admired. Who are you? How would you answer that? And how would you answer the what do you do? Do you lead? Do you teach? Do you play music? Do you preach, give talks? Do you share the gospel? Do you evangelize? Do you disciple? Do you encourage? Do you give? Do you counsel? Without love, however you answer those two questions, who you are and what you do is, in the words of Macbeth, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's what he's saying. Now, if this is what it's like within the church as a follower of Jesus, how much more so if you want to take those two questions and apply outside of the church? How would you answer the who you are, what you do, in the, in the world outside, whether it's your career, whether it's your achievements, whether it's your family, your home, whatever it is, how would you answer that? Who are you? What do you do? Well, without love, if it was even possible, without love, outside of the church, you, you're even more of a nothing. You gain even less. There is even less meaning. All of those things are nothing without love. And so followers of Jesus, I want you to ask the question of of how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Do you want people to be able to say say about you that you were a great what? Leader, you were a great pastor, you were a great musician, you were a great friend? They're all good things. But wouldn't you want most of all, because of this chapter, for people to be able to say, you were great at loving That's what we should be most ambitious about. That's the most excellent way. right? Because gifts without love is 
Nothing. However, the next one, love lasts forever, gifts don't. And remember that that's the other side of the sandwich structure, the, the, the bottom piece of bread. So verse 18, uh, verse 8 to 13, let me read again. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what's in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the childish ways behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Most people don't know this about me, but um, when I was little, I had a security pillow. Some of you have kids with security items. Some of you um, remember having security items. Well, I had a security pillow. It was this big, and by the, you know, by the time I was a little bit older, it got all kind of you know, gross. And, and the worst thing, though, if you've ever have kids with security or if you had one, the worst thing is when your mom takes and washes it because you lose your smell. And as gross as it smells, it smells like you, Okay. But that was my security pillow. I, I literally had to have it everywhere I went. I needed to take it on camp. Um, I needed to take it on holidays. If I couldn't find it because it would like fallen under my bed, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. All right, so I had my security pillow. I had it since I was a little kid um, until I was nine. Sorry, did I say nine? I'm in year nine. <laughs> really, I was 15 before I... And, and the only reason why I stopped having a security pillow is my oldest sister got fed up and she hid it. And I thought I'd lost it and I was devastated. And then like three years later, she said, I hid it. And then she shows it to me. But by that time, I didn't need it anymore. Because I'd grown out of it, okay, finally, at the age of 15. Now, Paul is saying to a church obsessed with spiritual gifts, he's saying, look, gifts are important, but you'll grow out of them one day. Like the little pillow. See, gifts are given by God to his people to build up his body until the head of that body returns. See, the body of Christ, if you like, is right now in, in adolescence. Right? We're, we're teenagers. We're still growing. We grow as people come to know Jesus and become part of the body. We grow as we mature in Jesus and grow up into the body. We grow as Jesus, who is the head of the body, uses his body. That's one side of the body image. He actually uses his body in his world to accomplish his mission. Right? This is a growing body. But do you know what? At the end of all things, when Jesus returns to judge, adolescence is over. Because the body will be fully adult. Because Jesus will have had his full people by then. And they will have been made fully mature by then. And his body's task on earth will have been completed by then. And when that day comes, you see, God is saying, time to throw out the little pillow. Grow up. Spiritual gifts are important, but they're not forever. And his point is, love, though, is forever. That's why it's the most excellent way. Love is better than gifts because love will last into eternity. And even alongside the other two things that will last into eternity, faith will always need to exercise faith into eternity. Hope, our hope will always be in God and His glory into eternity. So faith, hope, and love, that kind of three. Right? But even out of those three, it says in verse 13, verse 13 love is still the greatest. And I, and, I, and I think it's because 
You can say God is love in a way you can't say God is faith or God is hope. Love is really right at the heart of God. And because God is eternal, love is eternal. You see what I mean? Okay, so that's point one. Very simply, that's the, the two sides of the bread. Let's get to the meat now. My second point, what is it? What is love? Okay, before we get into verses four to seven, which really are those famous verses, love is patient, love is kind, they describe what love looks like. You'll notice he actually doesn't define love. And we all, we almost, all, almost always assume we know what love means. And certainly verses four to seven help clarify what love means. But I thought... I'll have a stab at a definition before we go on, okay? So here, here is a working definition based on the Bible, especially this chapter, of what you could say love is. This is my definition, not a biblical one, so, you know, do take it with a grain of salt. If I had to put it in one sentence, I would say something like this. Love is a turning towards someone to sacrificially seek their good. Love is a turning towards someone to sacrificially seek their good. I chose the words carefully, even though it sounds a little bit clumsy, for a reason. Most people think they know what love means. But most people outside of the church, if you ask them what is love, they'll probably say, baby, you don't... I mean, they will say, sorry, that just keeps coming back. Stupid song. They'll probably think that love is primarily an emotion, right? Love is an emotion. So you can fall into love. You can fall out of love. Now, Christians often will say, well, react to that by saying, no, 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 that's not biblical love. Biblical love is not an emotion. It's an action. Yeah, you've heard that before? It's a choice. It's not an emotion. You may not even feel love, but you can still act lovingly. Now, I wonder if you've heard that before. Now, I understand that reaction, but I think I've got problems with it. And one of the problems is chapter 13, verse 3. Did you see that? Paul says, you can give all you have to the poor, you can sacrifice your body even to the flames, but have no love. What's giving, what's sacrificing, aren't they actions? See, it's possible to act and have no love, which means that yes, while love is more than emotions, there has got to be more than just actions as well, yeah? So that, that's why I've defined it as love is a turning towards someone. Let's try to capture something. That, yes, it's not just feelings and emotions because it involves your entire person. You've got to turn towards someone. It includes your emotions. It's got to, there's got to be an affective, a, a heart element to love at some point, but it can't just be about emotions. And it is a choice because you have to choose to turn towards someone, but you can't just love begrudgingly. So I will act out of love for you, but I'll do it out of grid teeth. You know, kids that do that, they obey you. And it's like, okay, mom, I'll do that. I'll clean my room. But they don't actually want to do it. Well, that's not love. Right? Because you can do all these actions but have no love. So you've got to choose to turn towards someone with your whole being. So that's, that's why I've defined it that way. And the heart of love, the second half, is it's a self-sacrifice. It's love at the heart of it is me for you. See, the opposite of love isn't hate. I think we know that. But in fact, the opposite of love isn't even indifference. You've heard that? The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Well, no, I think I want to say from this passage, the opposite of love is selfishness. See, love is me for you. Selfishness is you for me. So let's now unpack verses 4 to 7. Um, I think we can put it in five groups, yeah? So let's go through them group by group. Firstly, love is patient. 
Love is kind. They're two sides of the same coin. Patience is, particularly here, not just patient in situations, it's particularly patience with people. And people who are difficult. People who, are, who annoy you. People who may be even nasty to you. And we all have people like that in our lives. Patience means you keep bearing up. Even though you want to complain. Even though you want to get angry. Even though you want to take revenge. You bear up patiently. That's what it's talking about. Now, I do want to make a note here. This is not the case if you are being abused. Because abuse means that your life, your health, physical or mental, or sometimes both, is in danger. I don't think in those cases it means just put up with it. Some people use that, and and I think that's wrong. Okay, But in in non-abusive situations, patience is actually bearing up. And the kindness is the other side of the coin. It's the more active side. So patience is bearing up. Kindness is reaching out. Kindness is that through my words and deeds, I can still show you compassion and mercy and grace, even though you annoy me or bug me or have wronged me. That's patience and kindness. And love is patient. Love is kind. Look at the next three. That's the next group. Not envious, not boastful, not proud. So love doesn't envy. Love doesn't look up to others and wish you had what they had. Right? It's called envy or jealousy similarly. Over their successes, over their things. Love doesn't look up and wish that you had what they had and are jealous of them. Love doesn't also look down on others and think, well, I'm so much better. Now, you can express that verbally through boasting or you can express it in attitude through pride or being proud. Looking up or looking down, that's not love. Now, you might think they're very opposite, right? But actually, there's something in common. Envy, looking up, and boasting or pride, looking down, has something in common. What do they have in common? They're both cases are, they come about because you're comparing, right? Because you're looking sideways. They're both motivated, ultimately, because you feel insecure about yourself. Isn't that true? They're both motivated by insecurity, envy or boasting. Jealousy or pride. See, the genuinely secure person has no reason to envy or boast because you don't need to look sideways to compare. Now, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to God. And let me just remind you that our security is so, so firm because it's not about how you are. It's about how God sees you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God loves you and you are secure in Him. And you need to only perform to an audience of one person. So we have even less reason to compare and be envious or proud, don't we? Next group. Love is not shameful or does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking, not easily angered, does not keep a record of wrongs. Now, the the first one, um, the older translation is love is not rude, but I think it's a bit... Not strong enough, basically. And, and the newer translation that we read out, love doesn't dishonor others. And maybe even stronger than that, love doesn't speak or act shamefully. Right? Honor, shame is part of the same idea. So it includes not acting or speaking rudely, but it may also include doing or saying things that are downright shameful and dis- degrading or shame others and dishonor others. So I, I think here it could, it could think, you would think about the party, drinking, the hooking up Tinder culture, that kind of behavior is not loving. 
right? Doesn't act shamefully, doesn't dishonor others. Next one, love is not self-seeking. There's a real problem. Um, you know, a lot of self-help stuff talks about you can't love others until you learn to love yourself. Now, I know where that's coming from because, again, it's about, you know, you, it's hard to love others out of a sense of insecurity, but I think that gets taken way too far, right? It's, it's really quite dangerous when you say, I can't love you until I learn to love myself. I, I think we're pretty good at loving ourselves generally. And love is intrinsically not about loving yourself. It's about you before me. Love isn't easily angered. And love is not prickly. Love is not hypersensitive to every comment, everything that happens. You just get worked up easily. Love doesn't rage. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is willing to overlook small offenses. You don't have to give an account Confront every single small offense. Now, there are going to be offenses that really do hurt you. And in those cases, love will seek and make turn towards the other person to reconcile. And when reconciliation happens, forgiveness happens, love will not keep tabs of that and keep on bringing it up again and again. The next group, love doesn't delight or rejoice, same word, rejoice not in wrongs, but rejoices in the truth instead. Now, this is a great reminder that love both avoids the wrong and embraces the right. Okay, you can't love just by not doing certain things, because there's certainly a lot of negatives here, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But that in itself isn't love. Love has to actively turn towards someone to sacrificially pursue their good definition remember that but also reminds us that sin is always unloving right the wrong is always unloving even private sin see some of us think well this doesn't hurt anyone so i've cheated on my taxes that doesn't hurt anyone so i look at some pornography sometimes it doesn't hurt anyone it's a private sin well, you know, the Bible says there's no such thing as, an unloving sin, uh, as a loving sin. All sin, public or private, directly or di- indirectly, will impact someone. It, all sin is unloving. All wrong is unloving. But the flip side is also true. All righteous acts, all truth is always loving, even private righteousness. And then the last group always protects, love always trusts, loves always hopes, love always perseveres. Of course, the repeated word is the word always. It comes back to the first idea that love is patient. Love doesn't give in. Love doesn't give up. Love has stickability. Or really popular word nowadays, resilience. Love is resilient. And that's important for us to hear, right? Because we live in a world of instant gratification where relationships sort of come and go, social media, very superficial friendships. We need to hear and apply this. Love is resilient. Love persists. Love follows through. See, love is mostly not a short-term project, which is a great reminder on Mother's Day, right? Any mum who only plans to love a child for a year or even 10 years, that's a long time, 10 years, but if you only plan to love your child until you're age 10, well, you're not going to be much of a mum, are you? Motherhood, we all know instinctively, is a lifelong project. Well, love is no short-term project either. And so to my final point, who is love? 
You see, I wonder if you could replace verses 4 to 7, the word love with your name, and would it still be true? So have a look at that list again. And just in your head, replace the word love with your name. Peter's patient, Peter's kind. Pete does not envy, does not boast, is not... I mean, have you tried doing that? You wouldn't get very far, would you? I know I don't. Is this you? But even more importantly, remember the context. Paul writes these things about love because, well, quite frankly, the church in Corinth was the exact opposite of this list. I'll just really quickly go through them because... When it comes to patience and kindness, well, the Corinthians were very impatient and unkind. And if you remember, last year we did chapter 11 on the Lord's Supper. They were so impatient and so unkind. Even at the Lord's Supper, there's one thing that they're supposed to show love and kindness and patience and wait for each other and show unity. Messed it up. The Corinthians were envious. They were boastful. They were proud, especially when it came to spiritual gifts. The Corinthians behaved rudely, but also dishonorably and shamefully, especially when it came to sex. They were full of self-seeking behavior when it came to food sacrifice to idols. That's back in chapter 8 and 9. They're easily angered. They kept records of wrongs, so much so that they even took each other to court. Brothers and sisters in Christ suing each other. They rejoiced, well, they rejoiced in wrongs. And they didn't rejoice in truth. Now we see that back in chapter 5, there was a case of incest. And rather than condemning this horrible case of incest, they rejoiced in it. They gave up easily. They didn't persevere. They didn't always protect. They didn't trust. They didn't hope. See, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, love is everything you aren't. That's why I say it's more like your mom telling you off than your dad giving you some advice on your wedding day. So I think with that in mind, we do need to think about not just us individually, can you put your name to it, but can we put our church's name to it? What part of this chapter do we need to apply to us at Sweck Bankstown? Now, there was something that I thought is probably worth mentioning. Again, don't hear this as a stinging, harsh rebuke, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But I do know with a church congregation, and by the way, I had a different application for Kingsgrove, just so you know. With a church congregation this size, right, we're still kind of small and intimate, and relationships are deep. I can see some really great things happening with this congregation. There are some really great relationships. People go and hang out, right? There was an NBA game yesterday, and you guys hung out. We go out for dinner. And, and, and the size of our congregation allows for that. But one of the things that tends to creep in with, with relationships of a congregation this size that I think we need to watch out for is gossip. Do you know what I mean? Gossip? Gossip is one of those respectable sins, right? It's, 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 it's really destructive, but we just tend to ignore it because gossip really hides itself well. Because gossip often hides itself under concern. It hides itself under prayer points. I want to share with you a prayer point about. But actually, it's gossip. And gossip, when it comes back to you in an indirect way, can really be hurtful. I know some of you have been hurt by gossip. Um, Not necessarily here. Some of you have left churches because of gossip. Let's not carry it with us. A good rule of thumb is, would I be talking about this person that I'm talking about behind the back? Would I be saying the same things about them if they were right here with me? 
Would I be saying the same things in the same way? Because it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. You know what I mean? And if you can't answer yes, 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 then don't say it. No matter how much you want to share that prayer point. And I think the deeper thing we do need to think about gossip is, why do we want to share this information? Like, deep down inside, is it really out of concern and love? Because I know when I gossip, often it's because there's a sinful desire I'm feeding. Often that sinful desire is power. Because information is powerful. You feel powerful when you've got information that other people don't have. Isn't Isn't that true? When you can say to someone, hey, I want, you know, this person, I'm really concerned about them. You're not really, but... Being able to say that even gives you power. Maybe you're a leader. Maybe you have inside information that other people don't have. I feel like sometimes I gossip because I'm... It's power. Or sometimes I gossip because I didn't intend to gossip, but the person I'm talking to, well, somehow I look better in their eyes because I'm sharing this information. I don't know why sometimes. It may be vanity. I have this information. Of, I'm just going to tell you. Didn't you know, intend on telling you, but I'm just going to tell you because I have this information. Sometimes not motivated so much by power, but by vanity. I want you to think well of me, so I'm going to tell you this. You see? Have a think. When we feel like we we can't help but talk about someone behind their back, what's it motivated by? And I think it's really important in a congregation like ours, this size, where there are close intimate relationships, and a lot of gossip, I think, does happen not out of malice, but because we are close, that we've got to be really, really careful. Really careful. And it may be that you've gossiped about someone and you know it. And today you need to say sorry to them afterwards. Now, ultimately, love won't be perfectly seen in any single person here or any local church. You won't be able to substitute the word love with your name or your church's name. And it'd still be 100% true. That's just impossible because there's only one name you could substitute the word love there with in verses 4 to 7, yeah? Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus is not boastful. He's not proud. Jesus is not rude and shameful. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered or keeps a record of wrongs. Thank him for that. Jesus doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus loves us like that? I read this once. I asked Jesus, how much do you love me, Lord? He said, this much. And then he stretched out his arms and died. See, when it comes to turning towards someone to sacrificially seek their good, aren't you glad Jesus is like that? And Jesus has done that to you. Aren't you amazed that he loved you enough to go to the cross, to pay for your sins. When the Bible says we really wanted nothing to do with him, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then when he forgave you, all of his anger against your sin is gone, wiped clean, and he keeps no record of wrongs. And he never fails you. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. You see, until you are loved by Jesus like this, 
and have swam in this love, there will always be limits to your love. Like There will always be limits to our patience, our kindness, our forgiveness, our tolerance, our joy, our seeking the good of others. You're going to reach a limit. See, I don't know if you know this, but people who aren't followers of Jesus also know how to love. Okay, Love is not a uniquely Christian thing. It's just that love for most people who don't experience the love of Jesus is ultimately directed at those who are deserving because that's natural or those who are lovable or those who can earn your love later on even if they're not deserving yet they will later on but only those who are really loved by Jesus can supernaturally be able to grow to love like he did no other religion teaches you to love your enemies no other religion has someone who went to the cross for his enemies. There is a love that keeps on giving and keeps on sacrificing and expects nothing in return. That is a love that never fails. So followers of Jesus, if you want to grow better at loving others, don't work out how to love yourself more. That's a dead end. You need to keep being loved by Jesus, delighting in swimming in, indulging in, treasuring in His love, because that's the fuel you'll need. If you're not a follower of Jesus, well, He loves you like this. So are you willing to let Him, to receive His love? And you can do that today. Why don't we pray? I'll get the band to get up, and we'll get ready to sing. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You for the way you love us. And we are powerless to love like you love us until your love so overwhelms us that it overflows through us. So please do that in our lives, we pray. Amen.